So take your Bibles. We're going to continue our story this morning. We are in the Gospel of Mark. We'll be in chapter 7, verse 1, or starting there. And a, just a brief review, go back where we were. Jesus and his disciples uh, have been across the lake. Jesus has done some amazing stuff. He's fed 5,000 people. He walked on water, uh, just leaving the disciples absolutely astonished. We would be too. Arriving back, word breaks out. And, and when they return, people just go wild and they start bringing him sick and crippled people from every corner and nook of the communities that they can find him in. People were just flocking, even just touched the fringe of Jesus' garment. We covered that last week. But all is not well. Already a dark cloud has developed over the burgeoning movement. The Jewish leaders have already determined that Jesus must be taken out. And they are devising clever schemes to trap or catch him in inconsistencies that will disqualify him in the eyes of the, of the people. And we're going to read that this morning as the chess game begins. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. We're excited. We had a good week. We thank you for that. And thank you for incredible effort of people to uh, bring good news to little children. Lord, and we knew you loved well, we know you love children. We know that they're precious to you. And, and that just hanging around this week was an extra special thing. Bless you for it. Thank you for all the stuff you did. And Lord, as we're coming this morning, we're going to talk through a thing that's our problem. It's the Pharisees' problem, but it's our problem as well. And one that uh, we all have uh, gone through, one that it's as old as Christianity. It's as old as you've been on the earth. And uh, Lord, we, it's something that uh, consistently is things that we wrestle with. So as we go through this this morning, I just open up the service to you. It's your church. It's your service. I'm your son. Speak through me, but have a conversation with people as we go through this and uh, delight with us this morning in your name. Amen. All right. So starting in Mark chapter 7, verse 1, and it reads like this. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches, and the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now Mark has this part. If you notice, there were parentheses in those passages. It was too big to get on one slide. But the parentheses are there because uh, Mark is, if you remember where he wrote this, he's writing this in Rome. Right? So he's writing to Roman Christian, Roman audience, uh, they're not that familiar with Jewish culture or Jewish laws. And so he puts that in there as a, as a helpful uh, explanation for them. The tradition of the elders is an interesting thing. The tradition of the elders is called the Mishnah. Right? And the Mishnah, uh, at the time of Jesus, was a collection of oral traditions from the great rabbis as they uh, interpreted the Mosaic Law. And so these were collected, and then about 200 A.D., they were actually written and codified in a book form. So if you wanted to get this online, you could get this online and read through it and see what it says, and you could read what the great rabbis had to say. But here's the interesting thing about that. 
the Expositor's Bible commentary points out that the purpose of the Mishnah was to regulate every aspect of a person's life. So in a lot of ways, they felt like there were gaps in the record for what Scripture said about certain things, and they uh, felt like it was their obligation and job to fill in those gaps. And so they did. So the commentary states that uh, if the law was silent or vague on a particular subject, one could be sure that the tradition would be loud and explicit. Right? If you couldn't figure it out, go to the Mishnah. They'd tell you what to, what to think. And the teaching of the great rabbis was considered binding. So this wasn't optional or like, well, that's just from a rabbi. I can take it or leave it. It was considered binding in the culture. It goes on to say that by Jesus' time, they had elevated their own oral law to the level of Scripture and maybe even above Scripture, as we'll see here in these passages. But note the tone. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? I.e., the thinking behind this, if you're catching the tone, is if your disciples are defiled, then so are you. You're an errant teacher to have missed something as basic as this. If you can't even get the washing hands right, how can you be a great teacher? They see themselves in this, notice the, the position they take. They see themselves as the authority and as authoritative on these matters. They, they know exactly where their position is on these kind of issues. And with the obligational sense that Jesus needs to answer to them. There's no sense of they need to answer to him. You better answer to us because we're the experts on this. So that's the, how that's coming across. Uh, in essence, what they're saying is, how dare you run against and violate the teaching of the great rabbis? Right? Now pause for a minute. Just think, how ironic is that statement, right? We have hindsight. We know who Jesus is. That is really ironic. They were saying that to him because the greatest rabbi was there. <laughs> so you kind of get that, right? But what they're saying to Jesus is really, who do you think you are? Where, where do you get off pulling this stuff off? I mean, you know, we, we've kind of tolerated you for a bit, but you're getting annoying and this would be a good place for you to stop right now in case you don't get the hint. Jesus knows what they're doing and the spirit that they're doing it in and he will have none of it. He calls them out right in front of the crowd. Later you'll see he calls the crowd to himself. And by the way, you didn't do this, right? You did not call out the scribes or Pharisees or the rabbis in public. That was just like unheard of. Lightning was going to strike you. I mean, that was on that kind of level. And so when Jesus responded back, his words must have hit like a baseball bat. They weren't expecting it. And he pulls from Isaiah without answering their question. And he says to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Now, point number one, Jesus here is claiming to be God by quoting this passage. Right? He's, he's personalizing that. And he's talking about there's point number two, he's labeling them as false teachers. So he's flipped the paradigm and, and kind of knocked the ball back into their court and says, there, what do you think? How, how are you going to deal with this? Because this is what I think. When we, the word that stands out in that whole passage here is uh, hypocrites, right? Hypocrites means play actors or play acting. 
Uh, and so uh, if you're talking about what is a hypocrite, uh, we all know what a play actor is, right? We live in the era of media and that kind of stuff. It's someone who assumes a role and then wants you to believe that that is really them. By the way, when it comes to our media-saturated culture, one of the reasons that we should be careful with TV, media, that kind of stuff, is that nine-tenths of what you're watching is play-acting. That is not who they really are. They are play-acting a role and want you to believe that that's who they really are. No word to the television show that you watch in my house. One, two, three. It's a bad show. There we go. All right. That's an inside joke. Sorry for the rest of you. Thank you, Zeb. Buddy, way to go. All right. The Pharisees were people who were assuming a religious posture, but they weren't really religious at all. Okay? And not in the sense that they loved God or trusted God or any intentions of surrendering to God. How did Jesus know that? Well, because God was standing right in front of them and they didn't recognize it. Slight miss on their part. And so the goal this morning is that we'd not make the same whiff, that we would not make the same mistake as they made. And the, the message this morning coming after this is as old uh, as the Bible. I mean, you, you'll recognize it right away, but it's good for us to walk through and be reminded of things that we should remember. So uh, let's go on with the passage. Whoa, wow. That went like three, four times there. There we go. There we go. Mark 7. So starting with verse 9, he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Now this practice of Corbin was, uh, you would think that if it was Corbin, it would be set aside not for your parents, but set aside for God. Not necessarily so. They could label it as Corbin and set aside for whatever they chose to and then say to their parents, well, I can't give that to you for, to help you because it's Corbin. Well, you can see how easily that got misused right and abused sense because they kept it for themselves and that was what jesus was getting on is you you're manipulating the system for your own gain and benefit the pharisees here as you can tell are very interested in looking religious why for the very issue that jesus is pegging them on right here he's saying look you've turned this around into something you profit from and here's how they did it. They had the temple sacrificial system and what they learned to do is make it into a money-making machine. And so how they did it was, for example, remember Jesus went in and overturned the tables and the coins and, the, and he flipped it all over? That's why he was upset is because what they had there was what was called temple money. right? So you couldn't come in with your regular uh, approved uh, Israeli stamp currency. It had to be temple currency. So when you came in with your money, they'd say, well, you can't use that because that's not holy money. You need to exchange it for temple money and then your sacrifice will be accepted by God. And by the way, we take a little cut of that and we're going to profit off of that. 
And when it came to animals, they would say, by the way, we can't really trust you because we don't know if your animals are kosher or not. And so we will provide kosher animals so that we know for sure that they're not blind or lamed or, uh, you know, got spots or bruises or these things that the law says they can't have. And so you exchange your animals for our temple animals for your sacrifice and then your sacrifice will be acceptable to God. And by the way, we'll take a little cut of that. Okay? And many such practices like that, and they turned the whole sacrificial system into um, their money-making scheme. They profited greatly from that. It was a great means of gain, and they got a percentage or cut of all of it. And thus, in that culture, they had tremendous clout, they had tremendous power, uh, they were unassailable uh, in many ways, and and Jesus really shakes up the boat when he calls this stuff into account because he's blowing their cover. Here's the offense. They made the kingdom of God something they play acted at. Okay, They pretended to be uh, surrendered. They pretended to be um, committed. They pretended to be of faith. But the truth is they weren't at all. They were posing or posturing. Something that they play acted at. Remember, or let me say it differently, something they pretended to be, but they really weren't. Remember the universal principle? God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble, right? Remember, we've walked through that a number of times. I said that's the universal principle in Scripture. This is why Jesus was going after them as Pharisees. Why? Because they were intensely proud, intensely self-righteous intensely um, self-vindicated. And so they were unassailable and beyond reproach in their own eyes. And Jesus is calling them on it. In another place, Matthew, in Matthew, Jesus describes them this way. He says this, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. In other words, what's Jesus getting at here? Motive. It's not what they're doing necessarily that's totally off, but it's why they're doing what they're doing. Their motive, he pulls out their heart motive. Their motive is so that Uh, All their deeds are seen by other people. He says, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Remember, I had the prayer shawl and I I was going to get it and I had too many people talking to me and I forgot to run up. I forgot it for first service. I was going to bring it down for second. I forgot, right? Remember the prayer shawl from last week and it had those uh, tassels on the end, the blue and white ones. So they would lengthen those, right? Like out here, who's got the hottest car in the parking lot? Well, they must be spiritual bad right here we got Pershaw look at the they're dragging on the ground wow that must be a real holy man that was kind of how they were using the whole thing and um, Jesus is going after that motive after that posing Uh, they like to be treated in special ways and they were greedy for gain says they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called Rabbi by others. They love that position of honor. They like being in that place. They like being the benefactor of that. Um, you know, and, and people do that today. Jesus says this about them. He says, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. 
basically saying they won't get off their duff to help at all. Uh, Now, the people who have to be the most aware and careful with this uh, particular message and emphasis of, of course, are pastors and ministry people. That's who this passage is talking about. Right? So you're kind of off the hook in a sense today. All right? Uh, demanding that others follow the rules while we ourselves skirt behind the scenes and get away with basically what the Bible calls as lawlessness. The Pharisees were actually lawless people. Although they looked like that's all they did was operate under the law, but it was an outward law that they were posturing. The law had no penetrating effect on their heart at all. Looking surrendered in public and acting in rebellion in private. Anybody recognize that pattern? Right. Now, of course, I thought, well, if I'm going to get tagged by this, you should get tagged by it as well. Right? So fair play. And uh, you don't have to be in ministry to do this. Um, we're all guilty and capable of massive play acting. Making people think we're one way when really we're another or our hearts is in a different place. We do this all the time, right? We walk into church. How are you doing? What do we say? Fine. Nine times out of ten, are we fine? No, we just lied. Okay. Now we justify it. Well, I'm being socially acceptable. That's a social custom. I don't really need to tell them. I, I got it. But we do this, right? Really, Pastor Steve, how is this possible? I mean, what would that look like? I, I'm not getting your point. Well, let me give you some examples. Here, just some basic examples. So if you've indulged in pornography all week, just drunk it in, that's you've done all week, and then come and raise your hands and worship. That's play acting. Okay? You're the nicest guy in the world, but you're angry and mean at home. That's play acting. You look very holy and submissive at church, but at home rule everybody, and it has to be your way. That's play acting. You wouldn't dare say a bad or uncolorful word at church, but during the week you're full of slander and gossip. That's play acting. You're married, but you never pray together with your spouse. That's play acting. You embrace the God of truth, but find yourself lying most of the time. That's play acting. You're one person at church, but another person at home or another person at work or school. That's play acting. That's multiple characters there because you've got to keep them all up going at the same time. That, by the way, gets to be very difficult if you've ever tried that. Play acting, or as the Bible calls it, hypocrisy. How did they, how do we make this mistake, this sin? Okay. It has to do with where I understand evil comes from. All right? It has to do, it's a very important issue because the Bible says one thing about it and our culture says a completely another thing about it. And so we have to take a look at that because if you get the diagnosis, like if you go to a doctor and if he diagnoses the illness wrong, you're in a lot of trouble. It's not going to be helpful what he prescribes because he's diagnosed the wrong problem. And so it is with sin. If we diagnose it wrong, it's not going to make a lot of sense. So Jesus, back in the Mark passage, says this. He called the people to him again. And you can imagine how offensive that was to the Pharisees because he shouted out to them. Then he brought all the people and said, okay, hey, let me tell you what we're really talking about here. I'm sure they were really pleased with him. 
And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And here Jesus puts his finger on something that we often fall prey to and forget about. We often have very high walls up for things outside us that can be sinful, and rightfully so. Right? I'm not going to poo-poo that. that. That is important. But we're missing the other half of that equation about what can go wrong. Jesus is connecting on something different. Because he's pointing out, where does the defilement actually come from? And in his assessment, he varies greatly from uh, the picture we get today in our culture, that basically the very nature of man is good. Uh, That's what you hear. You, You are good. You have goals. You can accomplish anything you want. Anything you want to do, you can accomplish it because you're a good person. I want to do, I wish somebody would invite me to do a commencement speech. And what I'd say is, you know what? You're probably not going to get to do most of the things you thought. It's not going to go the way you want. You're going to get knocked on your butt and you're going to get knocked out and you're going to have to learn to pick yourself back up. How would that go for a commencement speech these days? Not so well. All right. But Jesus' assessment is completely different. He identifies the real defilement. How do we really get defiled? He says it comes from within, not from without. We're looking the wrong way. We're looking for the wrong stuff. What's wrong with us is our hearts. Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? It's our own heart that twists and lies on us. We don't often think of that, but it's like I'm betraying myself and I want to do it. That's a picture of insanity. Jesus goes on to say this. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? They still weren't quite getting it. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and it is expelled? And thus he declared all foods clean. Right? What do we got, a spider? Yeah. Is he going to attack you? Don't give it to Kayla. She'll scream. Good job, Mike. Thank you. Yay! All right. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person is from outside and cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Now here's the point on this. That was crazy for him to say that. Okay, we sit here as Americans and go, oh, okay, food's good, right? And, and we don't have any concept of this, but that like would have turned the whole thing, the whole fruit basket upside down. Um, we live in the freedom of the new covenant, right? We, we know we can eat stuff, and, uh, but this little piece right here, it was beyond revolutionary. It blew their whole sacramental understanding out the window. Declaring all foods to be clean would have been seen as blasphemy. What are you doing? Those were God-given rules of food for our la- so we don't get defiled from God himself through Moses. Are you claiming to be greater than Moses? And he was saying, yes, you are. You know, are you kidding me? You're going to try and undo the Mosaic law? But Jesus was pointing something out. They were focusing on how to not be defiled externally and had completely forgotten about the part 
about how not to be defiled internally. Jesus was saying it's what's inside us that defiles us. Here's his explanation. He says, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they are what defile a person. Now, I think we'd all agree if you look at that list that none of those things Jesus lists are good things. And we would also agree that they do a lot of damage and destruction relationally and spiritually. But where we might differ with Jesus is where or what the source of those evils are. Where that comes from, so to speak. Wait, 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 wait. Pastor Steve, stop, 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 stop. I'm a good person. Okay? You don't understand. I got set up. You have to understand my circumstances. Yeah, I sin a little bit, but it's not all that bad. I'm not one of those bad people you see walking around. Okay? When we say things like that, we're play-acting. Because we know inside that there's dirt there. What we're really saying is don't look at my heart. In in our culture, we say don't look at my marketing. Don't look at my presentation. Just focus on my marketing. Don't look behind that. We do this, right? What does this mean most of the time? This means this is what you get. This is what I want you to see. This is the Steve. Don't go behind that because if you see the stuff behind that, you're going to find bad things there and then you won't like me and you'll disqualify me. So you only get in this far. That's called masking or play acting or posturing. That's what we do. And the goal of the Christian life is to break that all apart, of which we cooperate so well with all the time, right? But here's what Jesus is trying to say. The Bible teaches us that it's our heart that must change. It has to be an internal change. The Bible's not necessarily looking for external change. It knows that it's the internal change that really has to happen. If you let the Holy Spirit change the inside, you don't really have to worry about the outside because the behavior will just naturally cease. If you get the heart right, the actions follow. We tend to go the other way around. We want to change stuff out here and then later hope my heart changes. But I'll cover it up for a while so that nobody realizes my heart's not right either. That's why there's so many instructions, for example, I just pulled one of these, uh, Colossians. Look at what Paul says. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which Paul identifies as idolatry. Why don't we get this right most of the time? Because we look and disqualify or, or uh, we um, you know, measure the sin out and then we justify, right? I'm not really that bad. And a lot of times we don't see ourselves as idolaters. That's a much more shocking label, right? We don't like that. Wow, we're idolaters. But we've traded something for God. That's called idolatry. We don't do it in the old-fashioned sense of, you know, here's a statue and we bring food to it and that kind of stuff. But do we worship our cars? Do we worship our homes? Do we worship our looks? Do we worship our stuff? There's all kinds of idolatry 
in our culture. Bible's again working from the inside out. But goes on, it goes on to say this, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put away and he lists things that have to go. Notice all of these things are heart things. They're, uh, think of it as, as you, in your control center of your mind, this is where these attitudes exist. Anger, wrath, malice, slander. By the way, malice is slicing somebody up with your tongue in an intentional, mean way. That's malice. And then slander is giving a bad or a false report about somebody. And then obscene talk from out. We don't even have to talk about it because it's all on TV these days, right? So it's, we've gone that way. Let's just take a look at the first one. And, and let's just work with it a little bit. Anger, okay? When it comes to anger, all of us experience anger and we all wrestle with it. Sometimes uh, it's righteous anger. Very seldom, though, we should leave righteous anger to God because he's about the only one who gets that right. All right, but uh, all of us experience anger. Often our first line of defense is, if you hadn't done that, I wouldn't have gotten angry. Think about it in marriage. No, you did that. You made me angry. Right? We often say that. In other words, we identify the source of our anger as outside of us. It's out there somewhere. If that hadn't been there, this wouldn't have happened. Now, it is true that external things can make us mad all the time, but that's not what the Bible's pointing out here. The Bible's pointing out about what already exists in our heart that when that bumps us, what comes sloshing out of the bucket? Right? Uh, I, I have my thing here, and I brought a bottle of water, and for the sake of the janitorial team, I'll keep the cap on it, all right? Um, but this is a bottle of water. If I knock the bottle and jostle it and tip it over, what if the cap wasn't on it, what would come out of the bottle? Right? Water. Why? Because that's what's in there. Only what's in the container can come out. So when we get jostled, a lot of times what's in the container comes out. It's not that it's not there. We just didn't want anybody to see it. Oh, I didn't mean to say that. Well, yes, we did. We've been rehearsing it for months and we've been ticked at them and it just took a thing, boom, right? <laughs> Flame on, baby, right? Now, there's another way this works too is um, uh, Trisha Cook gave me this illustration this morning after first I thought, oh, this is killer good. She says, we look at a bottle of water and we go, wow, this is really nice, clean water, right? And she says, but sometimes, you know, there's sediment, right? You can, you can put sediment in here and if you shake it up, what do you got? The whole thing's polluted, right? Would you drink that if there was sediment in there? And I shook it up and said, Mike, here, have a drink, buddy. You're thirsty. No, right? right? Go give the spider a drink, okay? But Yeah, right? Would it, would it work? No, we wouldn't drink that, right? And what the Bible's trying to say is the contamination's already in there. We need, only God can remove the sediment. Only he can remove the, the impurity there that, that's there. When we get jostled, what comes out of us? I've been on a 30-some year journey on that one. And that's just with anger. I haven't even gotten to the other words yet, but I'm working on it, right? The anger's already inside. This is critical to understand when it comes to the kingdom of God. The Pharisees were looking for something outward. They had no intentions of changing for anybody uh, or anything, not even God. And Jesus was pointing to something internal. 
Look at Luke. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Another translation says the kingdom of God is within you. If we're looking for something out there, often we're going to miss it because what Jesus is saying, the work of the Holy Spirit's in here. We fail to look in that direction. Repentance isn't an event. Like we would say, you know what? 30 years ago, I repented as an event. I did that once. What the Bible helps us to understand is that doing that once and then I kept repenting the rest of my life. That's the tone and sense of repentance. We get to the place where we say, I don't have to repent anymore because I've been in the Christian life so long. I'm now good. I'm sanctified. Kosher Northview. I don't have to do that stuff anymore. That's for new beginners and sinners. I'm now a saint and I'm clean inside. Give me chapter and verse. Anybody. There are none. You know why? Because it says we have to keep repenting all through our life. Why? Because God knows where the condition of the human heart. So repentance is not just an event. It's a lifestyle. It's a process. It's not done once and then you're finished. When you first repent and turn to God, that begins a lifetime process of internally repenting and moving away from the things that God wants you to move away from. You ever gotten rid of something, repented of it, walked for a while and then it came back to you? Right? Like sticky glue? Right? And you're trying to get rid of it? That's what we're talking about here. So why do we need to repent? Because it keeps our hearts right. Right with God and right with each other. Uh, Alex Torqueville, if you don't know his uh, name, came to America and he was writing a history about America and he said this about America. He said, America is a good nation. Right? It says, and the reason America's good is because its people are good. And he says, America will cease to be good when its people are no longer good. And he was talking about something that he identified as what we now have taken for our own and said it's special because it's us, as the American spirit. But what he was identifying at that time was that God really had a handle, a stronghold in our country. And people listened to him and people obeyed him. And because of that, America had not only able to do what other countries weren't able to do, but had a different spirit than other countries. And he pointed that out. And he said, America will cease to be good when its people cease to be good. And we've ceased to be good. Why? Not because we're any different than anybody else on the planet, but we have told God we no longer want you in our country. We want you out. We don't want your laws anymore. We don't want what you bring anymore. We're fine on our own. And the Bible says that is a cataclysmically bad mistake. Why? Because what does the Bible know that Americans don't know? Only Jesus makes us good. We weren't good in and of ourselves. Only Jesus makes us good. Is it true that people can respond to God's law even naturally? Yes, they can. That's why we can be good. But it keeps our hearts right. Look in Hebrews Here, and we'll wrap up with this. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The process here, when we stop repenting, what happens is the Bible says our hearts start to harden up. We used to love God, and we used to love being... 
right? We just start getting distance, 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 and then we can't figure out why everything's going so wrong. It's because we won't repent. We will not agree with God that he's right and we're wrong. We're fighting him. We're battling him. We're wrestling him. We're angry at him. We lob stuff at him. We're ticked at him. Why? Because things are going wrong for my kingdom. But it says here that repentance keeps our hearts right. That we are to exhort each other every day, as long as we have today, that we not be hardened by deceitful, and we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original confidence and firm to the end. What was the original confidence? Go back to when you first prayed the prayer and asked Jesus into your life. How did that prayer go? Lord Jesus, I need you. I need your help. I recognize I have sin or I've been sinful and it's made a mess. And Lord Jesus, I can't fix it. You've got to do something. You've got to come in. Could you come in and save me? Would you come into my life and forgive me of my sins? And would you save me? Right? That is a process of repentance. And that process that happens here, it says here, that was our original confidence. What was it? That God would do that part. He would clean up my heart. Right? But then life happens. Right? Some of us, you know, we've walked with the Lord a long time. and Okay, that's, that's for rookies. Right? I'm certified kosher Norfew. I've been here a long time. I, I got the pass. I don't have to do that stuff anymore. What happens? Our hearts harden up. Right? And then when they harden up, we start doing the bad things all over again that we once walked away from. Uh, Jesus described it as a pig returning to the mire or a dog returning to its vomit. We do that. Pleasant picture, by the way. Right? When we get hardened, we cease to repent. When we cease to repent, i.e. when we quit turning towards God, then we cease to be good. So the question this morning is this for us, right? Classic question, but it's worth throwing out there. Are we play acting? Or are we, do we have a surrendered kingdom heart? A, a, a repentant heart? A repentant heart understands that I must let God work from the inside out rather than the other way around. If you've been working from the outside in hoping God would get to you, what I'm suggesting this morning, you should just stop and let God in. It's not working holding him out. And he's not impressed, as you can tell from the Pharisees, he's not impressed with our defenses anyways. Are you play acting? Or do you have a surrendered kingdom heart? Let's pray this morning. Father, we've left that question hang right there because it's a great question. It's one we all know. It's one we've dealt with. And it just might be that this particular morning, this particular time in our church life and in the life of the people who come this morning that you're talking to them about that and there's been something that comes up that rings really true with this and there's a particular issue on the table. Uh, Maybe it's anger like what we just talked about where they know there's anger in their heart and they know they have to let it go and they won't or haven't and they're really struggling. And Father, we pray for your freedom this morning. What you were looking for is for people to recognize who you were and that what you brought was the cure that only you could heal the condition of the human heart, that we can't fix ourselves. 
And Lord, we believe that with all our hearts and we ask you to have mercy on us this morning. Help us if there's something we've been really struggling with. Help us feel encouraged, Lord, and help us have a true kingdom heart. Help us not to play act with you. And we give that to you in your name. Amen.